looking um, at the seven churches of the book of Revelation. And we've seen that Ephesus teaches us about love in the church. And Smyrna, which we'll discover in a few weeks, I have a reason for changing the order, um, will remind us about suffering in the church. Pergamum, what we'll be looking at this evening, addresses the necessity of holding fast in the church. And there are two things to which we must hold fast. We must hold fast, first, the faith, and secondly, to holiness. Faith and holiness. So, if you walked into a church and noticed pretty quickly that all of the basic doctrines of the faith had been downgraded or ignored or altogether cast aside, uh, never uh, laid forth from the pulpit, that half of the congregation seemed so discouraged and, and, and downcast as if their dog died last night, and, and you discovered that the elders were all drunkards and addicts, the senior saints were shameless gossips, the college students were openly immoral with one another, and the high schoolers swore like sailors, you would have a right to ask if, if there was, this was truly a Christian church despite the steeple and, and the signboard out front. Um, it turns out that the church in Pergamum was holding fast to the faith on one hand, but holding fast to immorality uh, on the other. And uh, the Lord of the church was not amused. Uh, let's look uh, at this text. Um, Revelation chapter 2, looking this morning or this evening at verses 12 uh, through 17. Revelation 2, beginning... In verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. O Lord our God, open our eyes to see your word and learn of it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so then, first, holding fast uh, to faith in Jesus. Um, holding fast to, 
to Christ is not in essence or in end of matter, simply a matter of a warm feeling about Jesus. It means holding firmly to who he is and what he has taught us. It's a very sad fact that the Presbyterian Church in the USA, uh, which is the rootstock of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and my own heritage, has been losing 10 to uh, 50,000 members each year for over a decade and has been closing churches all over the country. That's not to say there are not some faithful men in those churches, but as a denomination, this is the truth. God is apparently removing their lampstands, and that is a terrible thing. We don't rejoice in that in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. How did it happen? Well, it didn't happen overnight. By 1923, the General Assembly, the highest ruling court of the Presbyterian Church in the USA, was concerned about the liberal theological currents in the church. And they set forth five basic truths of Christianity, five particular doctrines which they deemed essential to holding fast to the biblical faith in the Lord. They were very simple. They were the infallibility of the scriptures, the virgin birth of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and his supernatural miracles. But the disease of modernism, of liberalism, had so gripped the church already, this is 1923, remember, um, that 1,300 ministers across the country in the PCUSA signed a protest against their General Assembly's action in a document known as the Auburn Affirmation. I'm saying I'm greatly relieved to know that my great-grandfather did not sign that document, even though he was a minister in the church. Um, but uh, they, uh, they signed this document, uh, and it said that um, they declared that those five doctrines were nothing but theories and not necessarily the teaching of Scripture, that a man did not have to hold those five doctrines uh, to be a minister in good standing in the Presbyterian Church. Now, I don't believe anybody in the church in Pergamum would have signed the Auburn Affirmation. Um, God tells us that that church, uh, verse 13, said that you hold fast to my name, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who has been killed among you. Uh, those two expressions, holding fast to my name and not denying my faith, are conjoined, one defining the other. To hold fast to the name of Jesus is not to deny the faith, or to put it negatively, to deny the faith would be to lose hold of the name of Christ. The name, as we saw this morning, representing who he is. And so to lose your faith and commitment in the divinity of Christ or the miracles of Christ or the virgin birth of Christ or the blood atonement of Christ or the literal resurrection of Christ um, is to deny the faith and dishonor the name of the Lord Jesus. It is apostasy. Jesus said, if you do not believe, I am, ding, 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 morning sermon, if you do not believe, I am who I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sin. Now, who did Jesus claim to be? Well, 
He claimed to be the eternal God. He claimed to be the Savior, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might, uh, that we might be sons and daughters of the King. Physically resurrected on the third day, exalted to the right hand of the Father. And according to Jesus, according to the Bible, according to historic Christianity, if you will not believe that, if you deny that, you cannot expect to escape judgment on the last day. You will surely die in your sins. Not my words, the words of the Scriptures. Now, if we in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the Folk and Faith Church are to keep our lampstand, we must keep the faith. No Auburn affirmation, please, Lord. We must be like the folk in Pergamum and hold fast to uh, the name of the Lord Jesus, to the historic faith, even in the face of opposition. Uh, I'm at point B in the outline. Uh, the Christians in Pergamum knew all about opposition. Uh, Pergamum had this immense um, altar to Zeus uh, and another temple uh, altar uh, uh, erected to Athena and yet another to Dionysus. So the city was a strong center of paganism. And like Ephesus and, and Smyrna, as we'll see, Pergamum had a well-developed cult of Rome, uh, the temple to Augustus Caesar. Uh, all of us would have made, uh, would, would find um, Pergamum, like Ephesus and Smyrna, a difficult place to live in, where the pressures to deny the faith to lose our grip and commitment to the name of Christ would have been strong and persistent. The, the, the pressures of, of society around us would be, would be pressing on us in ways that, that doesn't happen in this country at this point. And our Lord commends them for holding fast. Look at verse 13 again. I know, he says, I know where you dwell, where so, Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, who this man Antipas was, we simply don't know. His story is lost to history, except that in this one significant detail, he was a faithful witness to Christ, even unto death. Uh, throughout the New Testament, the Greek word martyreo uh, is usually translated with the, in our English Bibles, as witness. But it sounds a little bit like the English word martyr, doesn't it? Martyreo. Um, because a Christian witness is faithful, uh, even under pressure. Um, uh, because Christians are called and required to hold fast the name of Christ and faith in Christ to the cross and to the empty tomb. There is no other Savior. There is no one else who, who could have met the qualifications. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Moreover, our Lord wants us to understand the, the true spirit behind uh, their troubles, uh, what was driving that persecution of the saints in Pergamum. It was ultimately satanic. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, by which is to say that Pergamum was a citadel of the devil. He was well established there and had many of his own disciples and followers and slaves, doubtless the majority of the congregation. Perhaps you've seen people 
in life uh, as you've been walking through life and you think, boy, that person really seems enslaved. They just don't have a, they don't have a grip on anything. They just, and, uh, and it's true. Um, well, nothing has changed though, you see. Uh, sometimes it will, someday it will change. It'll change very dramatically, but not yet. Uh, to make this a little more practical and a little more pointed, I might uh, say it this way. To hold fast to the name and faith requires us to resist with all that is in us the demonic suggestion that Jesus is not enough, that his word is not enough, that his promises are not enough, especially in the face of suffering or difficulty or confusion, when our faith fails, or our friends fail, or our family fails, or even our church or our pastor seems to have failed and gone wrong on some issue by our way of thinking. Then, then it is often there is the most temptation, isn't there, to think that, well, Jesus is just not enough for me. And his word and promises don't seem to be working for me anyway. What I'm facing, there's no help from the Lord, or so it certainly seems. But, you see, that's a great trap. If you find your mind going there, you should be smelling a strong stench, a nasty stench of devilish sulfur. Just say to yourself, trap, 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 no, 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 go zone. Because it's precisely there, right in the thick of it, right there, that you must grasp and hold fast all the tighter, all the harder in the Lord Jesus. And our brothers and sisters should be crowding around one another, helping us in those moments, holding us up uh, and encouraging us, um, uh, holding fast to his sufficient word. Cry out to God, say to him, I belong to you. You took responsibility for me. Surely your blood is sufficient. Keep me as you have your people of every age. Hold fast to the name and do not even in your secret heart allow yourself uh, to deny the faith and the fundamentals of your faith for a moment. Repent and throw those thoughts away. Just say, no, I'm not going there. It's not true. Well, point two. The first thing is holding fast to the faith and to Jesus. And now, the second thing Pergamum teaches us is to hold fast to holiness. And holiness is important. Uh, No man is saved by holiness, but without holiness, no man can be saved. Now, you understand that, don't you? We're not saved by means of our holiness. Uh, We're not saved by our performance about what we've done or what we'll one day do when we finally get it together. We're not saved on the basis of, of any of those things. We're saved on the basis of what Christ has done for us, period. Um, there is no required or possible contribution to be added to the perfect, finished work of Christ on the cross. Jesus paid it all. When you hear somebody say, when you ask them if they're a Christian, they say, well, you know, I'm working on it. You go, well, I don't think you got it. <laughs> you can't work on it. You just have to say uncle and, and ask him to do it for you. Um, but 
Yeah, finished work of Christ on the cross. We understand that. But having been born again by the grace of God, uh, we're called upon as Christians to live holy lives. That's ever been a mark of the church. And we've su- succeeded more or less, mostly less, but it is ever our goal and our required goal. Um, and if there's no holiness at all in your life, if there's no love for God's law, if there's no desire to seek holiness, um, no putting off of sin and putting on the life of Christ, well, perhaps there's no life, no saving faith. Listen again to verses 14 and 15 of, of the text, uh, where the, the writer says, John writes, but uh, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Um, Now, what do we know about the teachings of Balaam? Well, to understand that takes us back to the Old Testament and this um, Old Testament uh, pagan prophet. Uh, He was a pagan. He wasn't a Christian prophet. And his name was Balaam. When we read about him in Numbers 22 to 25, maybe some of you remember a little bit of this. Uh, when the people of Israel arrive on the plains of Moab on their way to the Promised Land um, in Canaan, they pass through the territory of Moab. And the Moabite king, Balak by name, was terrified at this development by the sheer size of the Israelite multiplied, he felt sure that they would settle in on his lands and ruin him and ruin his country. So he sends for, for Balaam, who's this pagan prophet, and offers him money, serious reward, for cursing uh, uh, the Israelites. And, and, and Balaam has no problem with this at all. He, he, uh, he tries three times, but, but um, and, 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 and Balak keeps taking him to different locations. And I want you to look over here and See all those people? Come over here a little bit. You get a better view of how many people we've got here. You, you need to curse them. And, well, you know, tries, Balaam tries, but every time um, uh, he ends up, the Lord gives him a blessing, he ends up blessing the people. And finally, and Balak dismisses him in disgust. He says, I called on you to curse my enemies, and behold, you blessed them these three times. But what we discover. When we read on in the text in chapter 31, uh, Numbers 31, and several references in the New Testament, is that Balaam, the false prophet, anxious and greedy for that reward, uh, suggests a fiendish go-around by suggesting to Balak that the Moabite girls seduce the Israelite men by means of inviting them to their idolatrous immoral feasts whereby forcing God uh, to, to curse them. I think we should look no more worse upon those Moabite girls as these Israelite men who apparently were, went along with it pretty easily. Uh, but the point was to somehow provoke the righteous anger of God against Israel in response to their willful, outrageous behavior. And, and that's exactly what the Moabites did, and recorded in Numbers 25 where the people we read began to convert, convert and whore with the daughters of Moab, being inviting them to their idolatrous sacrifices to, to Baal, which predictably turned into wild sexual orgies. 
which shouldn't surprise us. That's one of the things that, that um, is very curious, um, and that is that sin, uh, very often left alone, seems to drift toward a sexual perversion. Um, we see that illustrated over and over in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and we see it all around us, don't we? Um, that wherever men reject God, wherever they suppress the truth of God and turn away from Him and harden their hearts against Him, that uh, humanity often seems to drift, to sink to the dark places of greed and violence and sexual immorality. The Apostle Paul puts his finger on this very um, bluntly, uh, almost embarrassingly, uh, uh, of this willful rebellion of mankind who deliberately, who knowingly reject the rule of God over their lives. Uh, Romans 1, 24 to 27, Therefore God gave them over to sexual immorality, to every sort of dishonorable passion, even men lusting after men and women after women, which ought not to be done. Um, well, that's the sort of thing that our Lord is speaking about uh, among the church in Pergamum in Revelation 2, 14 and 15. Nothing new under the sun, right? So, point B, uh, this isn't good. Uh, what, was, what was hated in the church of Ephesus, as we saw last week, was actually apparently tolerated in the church of Pergamum. But just as uh, the Church of Christ cannot tolerate fundamental doctrinal deviancy, neither can she tolerate open immorality. Uh, the New Testament writers were just as savage in their denunciation of immorality in the Church as they were in their denunciation of those who forsook the faith in Christ and His Gospel. To deny that Christ, uh, Jesus is the Christ is to be a liar, but to claim to know God and deliberately disobey his commandments is to be a liar also, wrote John Stott, and rightly so. So, the New Testament is filled with warnings about immorality in the church. Listen to this, this one. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What a... What an amazing and important verse to keep tucked away in our hearts. Um, the church must not look like the world. Uh, we all struggle in our hearts with immorality and with, and, and with idolatry. And, and, uh, and, and we struggle and we must struggle by the grace of God. We must put off the old man, put off the flesh and put on Christ. We can look with compassion uh, uh, and empathy with those who are trapped in sin, knowing full well that we were, all of us, idolaters and liars and thieves and, and greedy and maybe swindlers, or if not sexually immoral. Uh, knowing that by the grace of God 
and the love of God and the mercy of Christ alone, we were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Hallelujah. Uh, Notice that our Lord demands repentance, though, on the church in Pergamum. He, He threatens them. Identifying himself in the beginning of in, in verse seven uh, or verse twelve, and again uh, in verse sixteen, uh, as the one uh, with words that are like a double-edged sword. Repent, therefore, he says. If not, if not, I will come to you soon and war against you uh, with the sword of my mouth. So it's either repentance or war. That's the only choice. And, and Jesus is very strong about this sort of thing. In the Gospels, he uses frightening language, uh, like cutting off your offending hand or gouging out your eye that causes you to sin, lest you be cast into hell. By which our Lord means to say that we, we need to do whatever is necessary to put off sin in our lives, to take holiness seriously. Brothers and sisters, who is sufficient for things like this? We read texts like that and we go, oh, whoa, you know. How could we stand? Um, we, we need Jesus and we need his loving forgiveness and his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to, uh, to forgive us and help us to live lives that are pleasing to God. We cannot do this ourselves. We simply can't. But we're not powerless. We do have his word if if we will hold it fast, which is a double-edged sword. For the, the same sword, the same word, to come that will come and destroy the unrepentant of those who refuse to turn and refuse to do anything about their, their lives uh, and will bring them to judgment, that same sword will also save and sanctify uh, uh, the, the, unre- the repentant. Jesus talks about trimming and pruning, doesn't he? He uses the sword in that. Um, and uh, it is the word and the sword which convicts us and, and cuts sin from our lives and will give us the grace and pleasure to, to follow Jesus every day as best we can. So, we're to hold fast to the faith and doctrine and to holiness. Um, brings us to point three. Uh, that's the message of the Church of of Pergamum, but in closing, uh, see how our God, who is gentle, and, and, and the gentle and gracious promises and rewards and blessings that he gives to those who are faithful, to those who will uh, hang fast and overcome. Uh, and, and we see this in the case of all the churches. Uh, look at verse 7. Uh, he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. This is in verse 7. This is verse 17, I think. Um, I will give um, to the one who conquers, um, I I will give some of the hidden manna, uh, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So our Lord promises gifts to overcomers. He promises gifts to people who run the race. Um, and, uh, and the first gift he promises is this gift of manna. Uh, and, and manna is the word of God. Uh, for man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that 
comes from the mouth of God. Uh, God calls his word manna, reminding us of the physical bread which he, with which he fed his people in the wilderness. When they moved out of the land into Canaan, God directed them, you remember, to preserve some of that in a, va- a vase in a, or in a golden urn that was placed next to the Ark of the Covenant, hidden away from the eyes of unbelievers in the most holy place as a witness and as a testimony and a reminder to the people of God that he would always feed them spiritually with his word, the Bible. So our, word calls it, uh, our Lord calls it uh, hidden manna because it's still hidden uh, from those who don't have eyes of faith. Uh, it's still hidden from eyes, those who have eyes uh, and, and have nothing but derision and mocking for the Bible. Uh, even as believers, we must cry out, open my eyes, Lord, deliver me from cynicism, deliver me from unbelief, so that I might see wonderful things in your law. You, you know We must read our Bibles. We must make time for it. There's no gift like it. But it's no gift at all until you open and read it. Um, And then come the blessings. Well, the second gift or reward is this white stone, stone with a new name written on it, which no one knows except the one who receives it. And in truth, nobody really knows exactly what this means. Truth. There's a lot of opinions, but no one's really sure. <laughs> Unfortunately, we find that in a number of places in, in Revelation. And, you know, you can talk to Dick, you can talk to Larry, you can talk to anybody. We'll all say, well, uh, <laughs> no, we don't know. <laughs> but, but one explanation, uh, and this is a good one, uh, suggests that, uh, that this white stone alludes to the practice of... Um, uh, the ancient courtrooms whereby jurors would indicate their vote for acquittal by showing a white stone and their and conviction by showing a black stone. Um, the idolatrous and sin-soaked people of Pergamum could expect nothing but a black stone, but Christ has a white stone for his church, for those who confess him and are saved. We who have been called out by God, who confess him as our Savior and hold fast to his doctrine and truth, who seek to honor him with our lives, will receive uh, new names, new identities, new lives in the Lord Jesus Christ. For if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. You have a new name. And no one knows all much about that except in your heart. And you know. So, let's hold fast every day to the faith once delivered up to the saints, to the legacy of faithful believers called out from the world, called, set apart for the gospel. Let us say, yes, Jesus, receive me, save me, keep me tight, hold me fast uh, in the gospel, in faith and holiness of life until that day when we come into your everlasting kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you again for your word and for this passage, which reminds us about the necessity of holding fast to your name and and the faith we know well in the scriptures. Lord, there is much that would pull us away. There is much that that would erode and eat away our faith day by day. 
As we come to worship you each Lord's Day, we're renewed, where our course is set clear again. We thank you for it. We pray you would help us to hold you fast and, and, and to seek to follow you truthfully and, and rightly and to lead holy lives. Help us, Lord, these things. We pray into Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.